You are tuned in to the Oil Field 360 podcast, sponsored by World Oil and powered by Galtway Marketing. Welcome to the Oil Field 360 podcast. This is a our first remote podcast. We are in Fort Worth, Texas. We are in Fort Worth for the Doug 2019 Doug Conference. We are at the offices of TSS Total Sand Solution, and we have a couple special guests today. We have Anish Jane. Welcome, Anish. Thank you. And we have Jamie Peace. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Alongside me today is the host extraordinaire, David DeRode. Good afternoon. Yes. And uh, myself, Josh Lowry. So we're going to jump right into this. This is, again, kind of a unique podcast. You guys are getting ready for your Doug Permian party, it looks like. We are. Yeah. Nice little happy hour. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a nice little thing. So we won't hold you too long today, but this is going to be exciting. So thank you. We're, it's too bad that with this video is going to be up on YouTube. And for those of you that are listening to it, I want you to go look at what you can because their offices are unbelievable. And how much of this office is up on your website? None of it yet. None of it yet. Give us about another month. Okay. I know a good marketing company. We, just, have, we, uh, have, we have a brand new website that's in development that should be launched uh, by the end of next month. What's that? Now, that's a perfect segue. What's your uh, domain going to be? TSSands.com. Okay, good. So, Because you need to go to it and see what's going on here. It's some cool stuff. So, uh, David, you know, you've know you known these guys a lot longer than I have. Why don't you uh, take over here and let us get to know these guys a little bit? Yeah, good afternoon, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for letting us take some time out of your day to do this. I think for today's uh, conversation, I think it's good to maybe lay a foundation by introducing yourselves, giving a little bit of background about each one of you, and then and then segueing that into how you guys got to sitting in this room together and, and then talk about what we're doing currently today in TSS. So, Anish, do you want to maybe kick it off with a little bit about your background and intro to the oil field? I know you've got a long history there. Sure. You know, I grew up in the oil field. My dad was with Exxon for 38 years. And that took us all over the world. Uh, this is now actually my third time living in Texas, now here with TSS. But you know, I started off not in the oil field, but on Wall Street in the financial services space uh, and ended up in Singapore at Tomasic Holdings and had lived in Singapore before uh, with my family with Exxon, knew what I was getting back to, but was now there for my own career and doing global investments in the oil and gas industry. And we looked at buying Fractech back in 2010. So, it was part of the consortium of Asian investors that bought Fractech from the Wilkes brothers and that deal closed in May of 2011. So, in 2011, they were looking for someone to go send to Fort Worth to be a part of the team, part of the company that they had just bought. Uh, and I sort of timidly raised my hand as something to go do and I think they looked at me as like, well, shit, this is a guy that knows what a burrito is. <laughs> you know, it's probably more than what most of the other guys kicking around Singapore. Yeah, I knew what to do. And so, you know, I kind of took that risk. I took that gamble. Uh, wasn't quite sure what I was getting myself into, but it seemed like a really interesting opportunity to go roll up my sleeves and get closer to an operating company after having sat behind Excel models and spreadsheets kind of for my career up until then. Uh, so, I moved over to Fort Worth in May 2011 and I ended up spending four years at Fractech and had a total ride doing that, uh, you know, now called FTS International, but spent a lot of my time there looking to add the international component to Fractech, to FTS, spending time in China, the Middle East, Latin America, between Argentina and Brazil, uh, crafting these joint ventures in different markets and, and getting the one in China up and off the ground. Uh, and also spent time there running our corporate development practice. So, looking at buying businesses, selling businesses, you know, FTS had been completely vertically integrated 
where they had their own sand business, manufacturing business, chemical blending business saying, okay, do we want to keep those things, sell those things? Were they relevant for us to own or not? And a common theme in all of that, both on the international trajectory and then also keeping an eye on the vertical integration was logistics. And what makes the US so unique in its shale revolution is the ability for it to move all of these consumables to the wellhead. And also once the wellhead is producing to be able to get that oil and gas out to the marketplace. And you look at other markets, Saudi, Argentina, China, completely different narrative about their ability to manage the logistics. And even, even internally with the vertical integration that FTS had, same story there. You know, the chemical blending ended up being not effective for us because we were buying raw materials in Houston, trucking them up to Oklahoma, blending them, and then trucking them all over the country where half of it was water at that point in time. You know, logistics constantly came up as a question about, is this a way to be competitive and, and cost effective? So, having kind of been bit by this logistics bug in 2014, was asked to take a look at our sand logistics business. And why have costs escalated so much? They doubled in the back half of the year from the first half of the year. And there was that polar vortex that had come in 2014 that really rocked the industry. Um, so, started peeling back the onion in terms of what was going on. And what became very clear is that it was an enormously inefficient business and there was a better way to do sand logistics. And the thesis that really began to bud at that point in time was that the amount of sand that went downhole was a direct proxy for the amount of oil and gas that was going to come out of the ground. And so, if you were a really big believer in the US hydrocarbon production, figuring out sand logistics was an enormous opportunity and potential to make the industry more efficient. So, literally, Jamie, who's sitting here with me, you know, he and I were flying back in 2014 from Philadelphia and very cliche, kind of on the back of a napkin saying, hey, look, how could we do this better? How can we make this smarter? And that precipitated this whole business plan of buying FTS International sand logistics business away from them. You know, the irony being that had sold our sand mines, our transloads, our rail cars uh, for 350 million in about 2013, 2014, but no one wanted the 500 person last mile logistics business. And so this question was okay, can we go buy that from FTS and manage it better? And so I left in 2015 from FTS, you know, with kind of a business plan in my hip pocket and, you know, this vision of, can I go convince capital sponsors to cut us a check? Can I go convince people that I used to work with to sell me that business? Could not have executed that timing more poorly than I did. You know, Left in May of 2015, by July, oil price was what, $20, $30, barrel lower. Got the private equity sponsor behind me. Could not convince my former colleagues to sell me the business. So, I'm sitting here now wringing my hands trying to figure out, okay, you know, what do I do? The thesis though, just still stuck with me that figuring out sand logistics was absolutely critical to making this industry be the efficient machine that it needed to be. So, I was milling around, advising private equity guys on deals, working as a consultant, just trying to keep myself close to the space. So, when Sandbox was acquired by US Silica, got involved in that process, worked a lot with High Crush and thinking about their PropStream and PropX offering. Uh, CIG Logistics was acquired by Energy Capital Partners, worked with Energy Capital Partners on that transaction, just tried to keep myself relevant and informed in terms of what was going on and ultimately met the Ortowski family in early 2017. And the Ortowski family had been serial entrepreneurs in the space. You know, for the last 20 years, they had started businesses, you know, Pumpco Services, they had Ortec Manufacturing up in Gainesville. They had sold 
businesses to forum uh, and to other private equity firms uh, as well as strategics in the space. And so they had owned this business for 12, 13 years as a sand logistics business and procurement arm, but hadn't really done anything with it. And so it was supposed to be this one hour conversation of, hey, we've met you, tell us about your ideas, turn into a full day working session. And then a couple of months later, I joined over a CEO to then go think about how can we go take this organization and rebuild it into something that's more relevant for today. So, so maybe before we launch in even further, might be a good time to maybe intro Jamie. Jamie, give you a little bit of background and then you all talk about kind of the next next chapter, Yeah, absolutely. which is where you were going. <laughs> well, unlike Anish, I, my family was not in the oil and gas business. I grew up on a uh, farm on the eastern shore of Maryland, a wholesale tree and shrub nursery that my brother now runs that he took over from my parents. So I essentially have no business being in oil and gas, uh, I think as far as most people are concerned. But so grew up in the eastern shore of Maryland, went to the Naval Academy for college, and then spent nine years in the Marine Corps. Five or six of those years was mostly on the special operations and reconnaissance side. Got to deploy around the world, kind of leading people and solving problems that had very undefined definitions of success and kind of accomplishing, you know, hopefully the impossible with as few assets as, as, as you could you could imagine. So it, yeah, that was great. But at the same time, it was you know, 2001 to 2010, you know, I got commissioned a couple months before 9-11 and then spent the next nine years of my life kind of deploying, training and deploying my butt off around the world. And it was awesome. I mean, I had to do, I had to do five years coming out of the Naval Academy and ended up doing nine because I was having so much fun with the opportunities that I had at hand, uh, but eventually got burnt out. And what does one do when they leave the, uh, the military these days? It seems like everybody's going to business school. So I, I headed down that path to try and figure out what it is that real people do for real jobs. Uh, when they're not shooting guns and blowing things up. <laughs> so I get to uh, business school and I, I only know two things. I don't want to be a banker and I don't want to be a consultant. And But I had no idea what other opportunities were out there. And a buddy of mine who was a year ahead of me by the name of Alex Sonnenberg, who I know we all know, said, dude, you ought to look at energy. It's in, uh, it's in Texas. They like veterans. And sure enough, I start heading down this path of, yeah, I can wrap my head around this. There's there's stuff in the ground. We got to get it out. And there's a lot of people and there's a lot of operations and logistics and just leadership that has to happen in order to make make that happen. So I started heading down that path and find myself, long like long story short, run into Anish and end up interning at, at FTS as the world's oldest intern. <laughs> you know, I think I was, I was 30 or 31 years old as an intern. Yeah, they offered me a full-time position to come back after I finished school. You know, spent my first year at FTS, literally just bouncing around the company, doing everything from every engineering class that they had to offer to going to every district and working on a frat crew for you know two, three, four weeks. You know, the first frat crew I was on, I was on the night shift of a uh, fleet in the Haynesville uh, doing frat jobs for Anadarko. It was just like an extra equipment operator. And very quickly, you know, my call sign over the radio is, hey, corporate, get your ass over here. We need you to do this. But, you know, doing that and doing it, like walking a mile in their shoes, you know, that was something certainly kind of the type of leadership, you know, type of humility that I learned in the Marine Corps. And you've know, got to be able to, to walk to walk in, in order to talk to talk and go spend time with those guys, really understand what the business is all about. You know, did that around the country on a bunch of different frat crews. And ultimately, you know, got the opportunity to lead, lead operations within 
FTS. Got that opportunity, went headlong into the downturn. You know, along that time, Anish and I were working together on some of these ideas. You know, ironically, I think he conveniently forgets that when he and I were trying to come up with ideas of, of how we were going to go take over the world, he really wanted to do chemicals at first. And I had to like smack him in the head and be like, dude, we spent $44 million on demerge in 2014. Like there's an opportunity in sand to do this a little bit better. But anyway, so off we, off we started working on that, you know, and he jumped ship to, to try and get that going. In the meantime, there's a whole lot of leadership changes that happened at FTS and you know, COO, the new COO at the time, you know, threw me the keys to the second or third largest frack fleet in the country at about two years in and said, hey, you're going to run frack ops for me. I reminded him, I was like, I've only been doing this for two years. He said, you'll be fine. And that was a long, long three years of writing that ship. I mean, you know, everybody had seen like the death list that was going around, all the companies that were going to go bankrupt because they had $1.4 billion worth of debt. And it was a lot of fun turning that company around, figuring out how to make things work better, building efficiencies in, adopting new technologies, building a better team, providing better leadership, and just executing against a plan and KPIs that really mattered. You know, utilization, pumping hours per pumping day, all those things that you know they subscribe to today, and you know ultimately were were the drivers that that got us to the profitability that we needed to be in order to get the company public. Literally about a year ago, that was a ton of fun. I had a great time doing that. But post IPO, it was kind of you know Anish had, you know, for six months prior to us getting the IPO, he's like, dude, I landed in this new company. You need you need to come join me. You need to come join me. I'm like you know, pump the brakes, dude. We, we got, I got this thing in the works over here. We got to get it done. I, I, I'm not done here yet. And then once, once the IPO was done, you know, it made sense for, for me to then take another opportunity with the encouragement of, of, of my old boss. You know, he's like, you'd be stupid not to, not to give it a shot. Here I am. I've been here for about 13 months. We've been executing on the plan of building this thing as, as, as strong and, and quickly and, you know, building the processes that make it so that we can repeatably execute on location for customers. So you've been here 13 months and how long have you guys been around total? So I joined maybe 16 months ago. Let me see if I'm doing my math right. You know, 16, 17 months ago on November 1st, 2017. And worth noting when Jamie joined in March of 2018, you know, we were driving around ops and he looked at me and he was like, what the fuck, dude? You didn't tell me this place was such a dumpster fire. Right? Like, what have you been doing for the last five months? And I just kind of looked at him and was like, waiting for you, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. like, Time to go to work. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of laid some, my next question here is, you know, your upbringings are similar. You know, you're, you're from a family business, tree and shrubbery. You're, you're not from a family business, but, you know, anybody who has friends that work for Exxon, it's a very, you know, it's a stable environment. They do move families around quite a bit. What upbringing similarities that you guys have, whether it be the military or, you know, your, you know, I, I looked at your career. You've had a pretty extensive early career has positioned you guys for that last 15, 18 months, whatever it's been uh, of growth from dumpster fire to where we are today. Because I am not sitting in a dumpster fire. This is clearly you guys have organized things. So how have you made that transition and what similarities do you two have that allows you to to move the ball forward. I think the, the really the only similarity we both have is we both got into Wharton. That's it. <laughs> That's, a good, That's a good similarity. Look, I think I think both of us are very much willing to embrace risk, right? And and in different ways venture into the unknown. 
right? I mean, Jamie is very much an operator. What I saw in his resume when I first met him, kind of wandering the halls up in Philly, was he was part of a six-person you know, advanced team that was able to go build a base behind enemy lines into a team for 200 people. And I was like, what could be more similar to all these crazy joint ventures I'm trying to do in Saudi, China, Brazil, than trying to go find a small team to go build an operation and kind of carry our flag into a new market. Being at Exxon or – it's funny, having grown up with a family that was so centered around the oil and gas industry, you come to appreciate how established, how pervasive, how persistent the oil and gas industry will be. At the same time, you know, my father has repeatedly told me like, look, I really don't agree with any of the choices you've ever made, but you seem to have turned out okay. <laughs> really? you know, the, the entrepreneurial approach – which is probably not always the smartest risk reward approach, uh, is not necessarily how Exxon operates. Exactly. Right. And contrary to their correct. Beliefs, yeah. And so the conservative nature, right, that thirty-eight years at Exxon would instill within you became much more obvious and relevant to me when I branched out and, and chased this. And I think Jamie's always been a good partner in terms of embracing risk and he likes to joke with people. He came here to provide, you know, adult supervision to me running around. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, happy to. Uh, it, it was, you know, it's one of those things. You know, and I, I joke that you know, we don't have that many things in common. But look, both both Anish and I, you know, a you want to win and define winning as building something that's that's truly differentiated, and two, absolutely comfortable comfortable in risk, and three, you know, the other thing is I think both of us really wanted the opportunity to, to bet on ourselves, and you know, while. We had the opportunity to make significant impacts at, at other organizations, FTS or you know other places. This was kind of the the, the really differentiated or, or best opportunity for the two of us to to bet on ourselves and, and try and really build something not quite from scratch. I mean, we joked that this business is a little bit of a restart up because you know it had been around for a decade prior to us showing up with uh, as the as the good idea fairies, if you will. But the opportunity in front of us absolutely is you know us betting on ourselves to build a team that to. You know, turn this platform into something that was good, you know, and had had kind of was, for lack of a better term, was probably languishing a little bit, and you know, breathe new life into it and use it as the platform to really you know build what we had in mind. So, so talk to us about the relevancy of TSS. Why are you relevant? Why will you be relevant uh, in the future? Talk to us about kind of the 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 aspects that that make this business make sense. Obviously, you gave us a little bit of insight into that from your background at, at Fractech. Y'all saw some opportunities, but tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I always talk about you know, we are in an E and P industry where people are enamored and fall in love with the exploration side, but then forget you know production. That's the manufacturing mode. That's how you really have to go and execute the drill bit, run the business. And a friend told me recently. You know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, right? Like ultimately building something that's more akin to an automotive supply chain, just-in-time delivery. How do you really manage cost to the penny, the minute, the mile? That's how you build something that's low cost, sustainable, flexible. And as this industry is going through this very, I don't know if abrasive is the right word, but certainly uncomfortable transition of saying, how do we go live within cash flows? How do we actually generate real returns? How do we build something that is truly sustainable, viable, people want to own for the long term? Managing costs and evolving the enterprise is critical. And sand is such a large portion of that total drilling and completion cost. 
how do you go and drive that cost down, but keep it reliable, keep it repeatable, keep it real time in building out that enterprise. And so historically, you know, so we are a distributor. I mean, we liken ourselves to a Netflix, a Walmart, an Amazon out there in the marketplace where we go and buy sand from a variety of people. We bought sand from over 22 different mining companies last year, and then we sell sand to a variety of people as well. And the frack company historically used to do that for their customer. But the frack company can only buy sand from the few people that it would normally buy sand through, but more importantly, could only deliver sand to its own frack companies. They can't, you know, a Halliburton frack job, it's very hard for them to want to go deliver sand to a frack tech job, sand job, frack job. And so ultimately, how do we go out into the marketplace and say, where can we go be much more of an independent or a Switzerland type distributor? buy sand from everybody, deliver sand to everybody, and help smooth out the volatility that's in that space. And again, all of that looks great on a spreadsheet. All of that looks great from a digital marketplace perspective. But what's so challenging about what we do is the amount of execution and operations around all of that, which then requires us to be a real business when the rubber hits the road, as opposed to just a digital business, which is why we have guys like Jamie. Yeah. And when when you sum it up, I mean, we're trying to bring the you know, Toyota just-in-time inventory model to, you know, frack sand logistics where, you know, the factory you're delivering your product to keeps moving. You know, it's, that pad's in a different location every month and the definition of just-in-time changes by the minute, right? Wireline goes down, you know, frack goes down or, or for whatever reason, weather, all the different things that can change the definition of in-time, you know, we have to fight through and we have to build the system and the technology platform and the data aggregation and the sensory system in order to know before it happens that it's going to change. Right. I, I don't mean to keep coming back to this point, but the, this office is impressive. And what's behind me right now looks like uh, it's almost like the movie, uh, you know, any one of these NASA screens. It's a full wall from ceiling to floor and left to right of video screens. And I'm sure you can maybe talk about that in a second, what we're looking at when, because I think that technology combined with the leadership, the the models that you guys have put into place is different than it was 10 years ago. I mean, obviously the, the market's changed over that period of time, but the technology you guys have implemented here has to be the part of the reason that the dumpster fire is no longer on fire, right? I mean, can you explain what is behind me and as much detail as you want to share with the audience, because it is pretty cool to look at. Well, the screen's about twice as big as I wanted it to be, so okay. I'll go ahead and pass pass that question over. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look cheap either. They, they, <laughs> they, it's really not screens; it's screen. It's uh, they stole it from Jerry's world. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, so what you're looking at is a wall of LED panels, and we asked the guys that installed it, you know, where else do you do this? They're like, well, it's usually sports arenas, bars. And really rich people's houses is where these things go in. Uh, but yeah, there's about $250,000 of LED panels up on that wall. One thing to think about or, or to keep in mind, right, this team that's here, a unifying theme is everyone at TSS and this leadership team is very math driven, very analytically driven. And we kind of joke that previously sand logistics was kind of crayon and clipboard, see to your pants, you know, send the trucks whenever you think you need them, where really this is fundamental supply chain math. How do you think about linear program optimization? You're trying to solve for a just-in-time issue. How are we thinking about queues that need to be formed at the mine, at the well site? How are you creating fungible and interchangeable nodes? 
all of this decomposes into a large math problem that has been solved though for things like airline traffic and airports being congested and rerouting. How do you think about having pieces that are interchangeable? So kind of the first premise that we had here was, look, you have to be able to execute safely and reliably. And so we need to make sure that we have this organization, which when I came was about 170 people and today is closer to 300 people and growing, probably you'll double again in the next kind of 12 to 18 months. But how can you execute safely in a decentralized workforce, handling heavy equipment? Again, this starts to sound very similar to what you have in a military setting, which is why Jamie and his primary kind of lieutenants in a commercial setting are actually also members of the veteran community and guys that he worked with as a special operator in the Marines. And then on the math and technology side, it was, look, how do you go and build a software platform that allows you to compute all of this analytics in a much more efficient, real-time, and accurate fashion? Because ultimately, we were trying to execute in this massive fog of war. There was no awareness of where all the trucks were, all the sand was, all the data that's going in there. People were punching things into Google Docs. Well, you have the opportunity to put in errors, fat finger mistakes, or people could go and tamper with the data after the fact. So how do you build the system of record? And we started taking all these concepts that you would have encountered if you were thinking about how did Uber get built or Lyft get built or this marketplace, that marketplace. How did all these technology systems get put together? And how do we start tracking where's the inventory? What's the cycle time? From when I press go, how long does it get delivered there? You know, is Lyft or Uber, are those good analogs for what we're trying to build? You know, the problem with that is you know, Uber doesn't care if you're late for your date. At the end of the day, there's a service level expectation around being prompt, arriving when you're supposed to arrive, and safely as anticipated. And so you can't do that without some level of control. So it was really starting from scratch. Right? There was no line of code that had been written prior to our arrival around this. You know, we had looked at different tools and systems that had been built around the software side. A lot of those were designed to take oranges from Florida to Chicago. They weren't really designed for what Jamie was describing of this just-in-time supply chain where the definition of in-time keeps changing. So we had to think about, okay, how do we start from ground up? What does the math need to look like? What does the interface need to look like? How do the tools look like? How do we put a mobile device in everybody's hand? And we're literally thinking about how do you get a smartphone in every driver's hand? How do you think about the fact that all those guys want to use Metro PCS? Well, Metro PCS doesn't have connectivity where you need to execute. And so it's kind of chasing all this down. Ultimately, the view was we need to build internally all the capability because externally, no one has been looking at this in a holistic fashion. The truck drivers just want to think about trucking. The sand buyers are just thinking about sand procurement. The well site operations are just thinking about how do I go measure my inventory on location? The oil and gas industry, the supply chain has become much more of a holistic component to it. And so that's how we thought about the software and the technology and how do we go build towards that, having a much more holistic view on all of that. So for, for those who may not be familiar with completion of operations, U.S. frac operations, can you give us a little bit of insight about the intensity around the logistics from a – how does sand get from barge or transload facility in that last mile – and the, the truck traffic, the number of trucks, I think it'd be, I can throw out the metrics, but I think it would be helpful if you guys would give some, some insight there. Cause I think it's a pretty amazing amount of work that goes into just a single wellbore, let alone 
maybe a multi-well development project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you think about the magnitude of the number of trucks that need to be delivered every day to a single job site, you know, the average job is probably somewhere between 50 and 100 truckloads, tractor trailer loads of sand needs to be delivered every day in order to support one of these jobs. That is, I don't know any other industry that, that requires that many loads of anything to be delivered to one site. And that same site for potentially 30, in some cases in the Northeast, 60, 90 days consistently. You know, these frack crews, you know, in 2014, frack crews were excited about pumping, kind of 12, having their pumps in gear, pumping 12 hours a day. You know, I think you're hearing anecdotes and we're experiencing today where we've got frack crews that are, that are fracking 17, 18, 19, 20. You know, I've, we've had days of 22 hours of pumping out of 24. You know, that's unheard of levels of efficiency gains you know, in the past kind of four or five years. And all that is, you know, translated to more truckloads needed to be delivered every day. You know, you've got jobs today that are, you know, at least doing, you know, 1500 tons a day seems to be kind of a norm, but you've got frack crews and, and operators that have streamlined their operations so that they're able to do, you know, in excess of 2,500 tons of sand per day, which is a huge number when you start thinking about the impact to the uh, road system, you know, and the, all the supporting agencies inside of it, and like what type of technology needs to be implemented, you know, in order to solve that in a uh, in a Swiss watch fashion, if you will. You know, one of the things you guys said a second ago that I want to touch on is this technology. Do you guys get considered? I mean, because all everyone's talking about the same thing, right? That expectation is that you have to control costs and it can't just be beat down suppliers. There has to be new technologies. I'm wondering, do you guys get considered to be a new technology? Are they, does the industry clamor at you as something that's new, that is unique? Do you guys get those type of phone calls? I mean, how are you viewed by the industry? Yeah, we, we get asked a lot, who are our competitors? I, I wanted to ask that actually, yeah. but I didn't. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's usually where we kind of trip up a little bit because we have a hard time identifying who our competitors are because I don't think there's someone out there that's offering our same type of service. You know, there's competitors in any one of these individual parts like, hey, I have a silo that I can rent you or you know, I can go and, and manage your trucking, but who can really do a turnkey component of that? You know, frack companies can for sure, but like we were saying before, a frack company can only manage logistics or deliver off somewhere there to support their own fleets. So yeah, I think I think people do view us as being a more unique, a newer offering, a new type of awful service company. Uh, you know, we are out there seeing other people trying to attempt and put that together, but ultimately that requires capital and understanding of the marketplace and really a certain amount of size. You know, part of what we're trying to do is ultimately build that scale to be, you know, a large network to manage the logistics and the volatility smoothly. So that it becomes that much harder ultimately for people to find an alternative that's as cost competitive and as reliable as we are. Yeah, it and feels it, rather Silicon Valley in here. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was part of the goal. I mean, you know, yeah. the, to you know, and this sounds a little, I guess, cliche, but we wanted to feel a little bit like Google with some dirt rubbed on it. Um, it feels like. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you talk about competitors, you, the biggest competitors we have are the frack company trying to hold on to this. And there's some frack companies that are trying to hold on to sand and last mile for dear life. And the other largest competitor is, you know, some some of the operators trying to build this capability internally. And we joke, you know, it's just 
understand why they want to do it. There is obviously some you know, gain of seeming, you know, perceived gain of control. But why would you why would you put that SGNA on your balance sheet? Like we've built this system, we're going to continue to invest in the technology to make this thing better. You don't need those heads inside your company. Like let us manage that for you because uh, we're going to keep investing in it at a at a level that you know, no operator or service company is just because it's it's not core to what they do in terms of putting more stages in the ground or pulling more oil out of the ground. Like let us focus on managing this piece of supply chain for you. I think it's pretty interesting, you know, as a close insider getting to see the way you operate your business and the and the offering that you have to both operators and service companies. And obviously it's been interesting listening to you guys talk about some of those parties come to terms and saying, hey, we don't really do this as well once they come and see how y'all are operating and managing this huge logistical issue, they give up, which is pretty fascinating. And I think, you know, you, you're uniquely positioned because you're not, not over leveraged with, with debt, like some of the sand mines, and you've got this platform that quite frankly, y'all are trying to compare yourself to the airline industry. I wish the FAA would come and talk to you guys. I don't know the last time y'all <laughs> been flying, but I'm wondering what those guys are doing. Maybe the little uh, TSS sand drive in their life, <laughs> make our flying lives a little better. So we're gonna we're gonna start to wrap it up here. But what we do to if you guys, there's a couple guys that I like in the podcast world, and one of them is Dan Patrick, and he kind of has a closing segment where he asks a couple different questions. We're not gonna ask crazy questions. What I like to do is ask: Is there a pearl of wisdom or a piece of advice that you would give an up and comer, a young guy, or something that is a, is something that you live by? that is a model that you model your career after your life or your business. And I'll ask that independent to each one of you guys. And uh, Jamie, you could go first, please. Look, I think the thing that, is, that has served me really, really well is uh, you're maintaining the humility to, to, to know that, you know, I certainly don't know everything. And inside that humility, you know, the willingness to, to try and the willing to ask a lot of quote unquote dumb questions uh, in the interest of, of learning and trying to really gain real understanding to you know, of you know the type of problem that you know our frontline guys are trying to solve every day, and in some cases, you know, that may require you, who quote unquote maybe overeducated, to go out and, and be a frack hand for you know a month or weeks here and a month there, in order to really understand what it's like and what problems you're trying to solve. And you know, I think a lot of times people expect that they can. Uh, kind of walk in and just start spouting off good ideas. But until you've gone in and, and dug deep and and you know, express the humility to truly understand you know, the plight of the everyday frontline guy, you, you really can't solve their problems or and, and solve the problem, the ultimate problem of how to make everything run better. Yeah. I've probably got maybe two or three just smaller nuggets that come together. You know, I think the first one is when I think about 2014 to here, kind of how the success, and I think there's still a long way to go before I can really say we are successful, but you know, this limited success we've had so far, it's been sort of the, the stubbornness, the tenacity, kind of the perseverance of having this idea and just wanting to grind it through. Because uh, there's certainly numerous times along this journey where I was very tempted to quit uh, and tough on the wallet, on the family life, and just trying to convince my friends to like not think that I'm crazy in that process. And that's probably not too different from a lot of entrepreneurs that are sitting out there that say, look, it's, it's the tenacity to chase the idea. Uh, I think the second one is when I think back about that similar time frame, these last four or five years, almost every single one of my mistakes can be attributed to me trying to rush through 
that process. You know, I think in general, and, and for those of you that can't see, Jamie is sitting here <laughs> laughing, holding his head, knowing how true that statement is. You know, I, I make the statement, you know, there's always time to do it right. There's not always time to do it twice. But taking my own kind of advice on that one uh, is sometimes where I fail. And then I think the third one is very similar to what Jamie just said, like surround yourself with people that really complement what you can do. You know, if they're just telling you stuff you want to hear or not pushing you on your thinking, ultimately, you're just going to stick in a rut and not think outside the box or, or get out of your own way and trying to get something done. That's great. Those are great. Dave, do you have anything? Left? I just I just have one crazy question. I don't I don't know. How 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 did you survive with Knox Nunley being your roommate at Naval Academy? <laughs> well, one of the most trying experiences that any human could ever have is living with Knox Nunley, because I, I, I would joke that you don't actually live with Knox Nunley. Knox Nunley lives upon you and all of your stuff. <laughs> yeah, there was more stuff that uh came up missing because Knox needed it. Yeah. <laughs> what a remarkable human he is and a lot of fun to be around. You know, Anish knows him and, and has gotten to know him pretty well, but <laughs> I get I, I got more stories that are not appropriate for any public podcast. <laughs> We're gonna start uh, another podcast. <laughs> 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 we're going to do another one. You guys, speaking of fun to be with, you guys were great. Everybody in your office was great while we were setting up. And I appreciate you guys letting yeah. us come in today, disrupt this week. Because I know this is a busy week. The Doug Permian is a lot of people in Fort Worth. So, it's probably you got a lot of visitors and customers, I assume, coming around here today. So, thank you for your time. Thank you, everybody, to the to the group here at TSS. This was great. David, if there's nothing left, I'm going to shut us down. I yeah, appreciate it, guys. Well, I hope you guys much. will stick around for a beer afterwards. Well, listen, I mean, if it sounded like there was juggling chainsaws in the background, <laughs> setting up the bar behind us. So, we're going to shut this thing down. Once again, their website, I'm giving you one guys another plug here. It is tssands.com. Hopefully, there'll be some pictures of the place coming up live here. And if you are in the Fort Worth area and you can get a hold of these guys, come, come check this place out. It's really remarkable at... Very cool story. We wish you guys luck. The dumpster fire is certainly out. So uh, we're rooting for you guys. So cheers to you and your success. Oil Field 360 podcast is going to continue to be a weekly podcast of all things oil and gas. Check us out on our website, www.oilfield360.com. Dave DeRoe, Josh Lowry. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.